Drama on One. Sundays at 8pm. rta.ie forward slash drama on one. Drama on one. This is RTE Radio 1. Over the next seven summer Sundays, we'll broadcast the RTE players' dramatisation of stories from James Joyce's Dubliners. Tonight, two masterpieces in miniature, The Boarding House and Two Gallants. Most people consider Lenehan a leech, but since he's completely insensitive to all kinds of discourtesy, he inveigles his way into any company. His fellow conman and meal ticket, Corley, fancies himself as a Lothario and any flattery appeals to his vanity. But can Corley persuade his unsuspecting date for the night to acquire the necessary funds needed for the evening? This is Two Gallants by James Joyce. The grey, warm evening of August had descended upon the city, and a mild, warm air, a memory of summer, circulated in the streets. The streets, shuttered for the repose of Sunday, swarmed with a gaily coloured crowd. Like illumined pearls, the lamps shone from the summits of their tall poles upon the living texture below, which, changing shape and hue unceasingly, sent up into the warm grey evening air an unchanging, unceasing murmur. Two young men came down the hill of Rutland Square. One of them was just bringing a long monologue to a close. The other, who walked on the verge of the path and was at times obliged to step onto the road owing to his companion's rudeness, wore an amused, listening face. He was squat and ruddy. A yachting cap was shoved far back from his forehead and the narrative to which he listened made constant waves of expression break forth over his face from the corners of his nose and eyes and mouth. Little jets of wheezing laughter followed one another out of his convulsed body. His eyes, twinkling with cunning enjoyment, glanced at every moment towards his companion's face. Once or twice he rearranged the light waterproof which he had slung over one shoulder in Toreador fashion. His breeches, his white rubber shoes and his jauntily slung waterproof expressed youth but his figure fell into rotundity at the waist. His hair was scant and grey, and his face, when the waves of expression had passed over it, had a ravaged look. When he was quite sure that the narrative had ended, he laughed noiselessly for fully half a minute. Then he said, Well, that takes the biscuit. His voice seemed winnowed of vigour. And to enforce his words, he added with humour, That takes the solitary, unique, and if I may so call it, recherche biscuit. He became serious and silent when he had said this. His tongue was tired, for he had been talking all the afternoon in a public house in Dorset Street. Most people considered Lenehan a leech, but in spite of this reputation, his adroitness and eloquence had always prevented his friends from forming any general policy against him. He had a brave manner of coming up to a party of them in a bar and of holding himself nimbly at the borders of the company until he was included in a round. He was a sporting vagrant, armed with a vast stock of stories, limericks and riddles. He was insensitive to all kinds of discourtesy. No one knew how he achieved the stern task of living 
but his name was vaguely associated with racing tissues. And where did you pick her up, Corley? He asked. Corley ran his tongue swiftly along his upper lip. One night, ma'am, I was going along Dame Street and I spotted a fine tart on the Waterhouse's clock and said, good night, you know. So we went for a walk round by the canal and she told me she was a slavey in a house in Baggage Street. I put my arm round her and squeezed her a bit that night. Then next Sunday, ma'am, I met her by appointment. We went out to Donnybrook and I brought her into a field there. She told me she used to go with a dairy man. <laughs> it was fine, man. Cigarettes every night she'd bring me, and paying the tram out and back. And one night, she brought me two bloody fine cigars. All the real cheese, you know, that the old fella used to smoke. I was afraid, man, she'd get in the family way. But she's up to the dodge. Maybe she thinks he'll marry her, said Lenehan. I told her I was out of a job. I told her I was in Pim's. She doesn't know my name. I was too hairy to tell her that. But she thinks I'm a bit of class, you know. Lenehan laughed again, noiselessly. Of all the good ones ever I heard. That emphatically takes the biscuit. Corley's stride acknowledged the compliment. The swing of his burly body made his friend execute a few light skips from the path to the roadway and back again. Corley was the son of an inspector of police, and he had inherited his father's frame and gait. He walked with his hands by his sides, holding himself erect and swaying his head from side to side. His head was large, globular and oily. It sweated in all weathers, and his large, round hat, set upon its sideways, looked like a bulb which had grown out of another. He always stared straight before him, as if he were on parade, and when he wished to gaze after someone in the street, it was necessary for him to move his body from the hips. At present he was about town. Whenever any job was vacant, a friend was always ready to give him the hard word. He was often to be seen walking with policemen in plain clothes, talking earnestly. He knew the inner side of all affairs and was fond of delivering final judgments. He spoke without listening to the speech of his companions. His conversation was mainly about himself, what he had said to such a person and what such a person had said to him and what he had said to settle the matter. When he reported these dialogues, he aspirated the first letter of his name after the manner of Florentines. Lenehan offered his friend a cigarette. As the two young men walked on through the crowd, Corley occasionally turned to smile at some of the passing girls, but Lenehan's gaze was fixed on the large, faint moon circled with a double halo. He watched earnestly the passing of the grey web of twilight across its face. At length he said, well, tell me, Corley. I suppose you'll be able to pull it off all right, eh? Corley closed one eye expressively as an answer. Is she game for that? Asked Lenehan dubiously. You can never know women. She's all right. I know the way to get around her, man. She's a bit gone on me. You're what I call a gay Lethario. And a proper kind of a Lethario, too. A shade of mockery relieved the servility of his manner. To save himself, he had the habit of leaving his flattery open to the interpretation of raillery. But Corley had not a subtle mind. There's nothing to touch a good slavey, he affirmed. Take my tip for it. I one who has tried them all, said Lenehan. First, I used to go with girls, you know, said Corley, unbosoming. Girls off the South Circular. 
I used to take them out, man, on the tram somewhere and pay the tram or take them to a band or a play at the theatre or buy them chocolate and sweets or something that way. I used to spend money on them right enough, he added in a convincing tone as if he were conscious of being disbelieved. But Lenhen could well believe it. He nodded gravely. Oh, I know that game. And it's a mugs game. Damn the thing I ever got out of it. Ditto here. Only off one of them. He moistened his upper lip by running his tongue along it. The recollection brightened his eyes. He too gazed at the pale disk of the moon, now nearly veiled, and seemed to meditate. She was a bit of all right, he said regretfully. He was silent again. Then he added, She's on the turf now. I saw her driving down Earl Street one night with two fellas with her on a car. I suppose that's your doing. There was others at her before me, said Corley philosophically. This time Lenehan was inclined to disbelieve. He shook his head to and fro and smiled. You know you can't kid me, Corley. Honest to God, said Corley. Didn't she tell me herself? Lenehan made a tragic gesture. Base betrayer. As they passed along the railings of Trinity College, Lenehan skipped out into the road and peered up at the clock. Twenty after. Time enough. She'll be there all right. I always let her wait a bit. Lenehan laughed quietly. He cod, Corley, you know how to take them. I'm up to all their little tricks. Corley confessed. But tell me, said Lenehan again, are you sure you can bring it off all right? You know, it's a ticklish job. They're damn close in that point. Eh? What? His bright, small eyes searched his companion's face for reassurance. Corley swung his head to and fro, as if to toss aside an insistent insect, and his brows gathered. I'll pull it off. Leave it to me, can't you? Lenehan said no more. He did not wish to ruffle his friend's temper, to be sent to the devil and told that his advice was not wanted. A little tact was necessary. But Corley's brow was soon smooth again. His thoughts were running another way. She's a fine, decent tart, he said with appreciation. That's what she is. They walked along Nassau Street and then turned into Kildare Street. Not far from the porch of the club, a harpist stood in the roadway, playing to a little ring of listeners. He plucked at the wires heedlessly, glancing quickly from time to time at the face of each newcomer, and from time to time, wearily also, at the sky. His harp, too, heedless that her coverings had fallen about her knees, seemed weary alike of the eyes of strangers and of her master's hands. One hand played in the bass the melody of Silent O Moyle, while the other hand careered in the treble after each group of notes. The notes of the air throbbed deep and full. The two young men walked up the street without speaking, the mournful music following them. When they reached Stephen's Green, they crossed the road. Hear the noise of trams, the lights and the crowd released them from their silence. There she is, said Corley. At the corner of Hume Street, a young woman was standing. She wore a blue dress and a white sailor hat. She stood on the curbstone, swinging a sunshade in one hand. Lenehan grew lively. Let's have a squint at her, Corley, he said. Corley glanced sideways at his friend, and an unpleasant grin appeared on his face. Are you trying to get inside me? 
Damn it, said Lenehan boldly. I don't want an introduction. All I want is to have a look at her. I'm not going to eat her. Oh, a look at her, said Corley more amiably. Well, I'll tell you what. I'll go over and talk to her and you can pass by. Right, said Lenehan. Corley had already thrown one leg over the chains when Lenehan called out, And after, where'll we meet? Half ten, answered Corley, bringing over his other leg. Where? Corner of Merrion Street. We'll be coming back. Working all right now, said Lenehan in farewell. Corley did not answer. He sauntered across the road, swaying his head from side to side. His bulk, his easy pace, and the solid sound of his boots had something of the conqueror in them. He approached the young woman and, without saluting, began at once to converse with her. She swung her sunshade more quickly and executed half-turns on her heels. Once or twice, when he spoke to her at close quarters, she laughed and bent her head. Lenehan observed them for a few minutes. Then he walked rapidly along beside the chains to some distance and crossed the road obliquely. As he approached Hume Street corner, he found the air heavily scented and his eyes made a swift, anxious scrutiny of the young woman's appearance. She had her Sunday finery on. Her blue serge skirt was held at the waist by a belt of black leather. The great silver buckle of her belt seemed to depress the centre of her body, catching the light stuff of her white blouse like a clip. She wore a short black jacket with mother-of-pearl buttons and a ragged black boa. The ends of her tulle collarette had been carefully disordered and a big bunch of red flowers was pinned in her bosom, stems upwards. Lenehan's eyes noted approvingly her stout, short, muscular body. Frank, rude health glowed in her face, on her fat red cheeks, and in her unabashed blue eyes. Her features were blunt. She had broad nostrils, a straggling mouth which lay open in a contented leer, and two projecting front teeth. As he passed, Lenehan took off his cap, and, after about ten seconds, Corley returned the salute to the air. This he did by raising his hand vaguely and pensively changing the angle of position of his hat. Lenehan walked as far as the Shelburne Hotel, where he halted and waited. After waiting for a little time, he saw them coming towards him, and when they turned to the right, he followed them, stepping lightly in his white shoes, down one side of Merrion Square. As he walked on slowly, timing his pace to theirs, he watched Corley's head, which turned at every moment towards the young woman's face like a big ball revolving on a pivot. He kept the pair in view until he had seen them climbing the stairs of the Donnybrook tram. Then he turned about and went back the way he had come. Now that he was alone, his face looked older. His gaiety seemed to forsake him, and as he came by the railings of the Duke's lawn, he allowed his hand to run along them. The air which the harpist had played began to control his movements. His softly padded feet played the melody, while his fingers swept a scale of variations idly along the railings after each group of notes. He walked listlessly round Stephen's Green and then down Grafton Street. Though his eyes took note of many elements of the crowd through which he passed, they did so morosely. He found trivial all that was meant to charm him, and did not answer the glances which invited him to be bold. 
He knew that he would have to speak a great deal, to invent and to amuse, and his brain and throat were too dry for such a task. The problem of how he could pass the hours till he met Corley again troubled him a little. He could think of no way of passing them but to keep on walking. He turned to the left when he came to the corner of Rutland Square and felt more at ease in the dark, quiet street, the sombre look of which suited his mood. He paused at last before the window of a poor-looking shop over which the words Refreshment Bar were printed in white letters. On the glass of the window were two flying inscriptions, Ginger Beer and Ginger Ale. A cut ham was exposed on a great blue dish, while near it on a plate lay a segment of very light plum pudding. He eyed this food earnestly for some time, and then, after glancing warily up and down the street, went into the shop quickly. He was hungry, for except some biscuits which he had asked two grudging curates to bring him, he had eaten nothing since breakfast time. He sat down at an uncovered wooden table opposite two work girls and a mechanic. A slatternly girl waited on him. How much is a plate of peas? He asked. Three hatens, sir. Said the girl. Bring me a plate of peas and a bottle of ginger beer. He spoke roughly in order to belie his air of gentility, for his entry had been followed by a pause of talk. His face was heated. To appear natural, he pushed his cap back on his head and planted his elbows on the table. The mechanic and the two work girls examined him point by point before resuming their conversation in a subdued voice. The girl brought him a plate of hot grocer's peas seasoned with pepper and vinegar, a fork and his ginger beer. He ate his food greedily and found it so good that he made a note of the shop mentally. When he had eaten all the peas, he sipped his ginger beer and sat for some time thinking of Corley's adventure. In his imagination, he beheld the pair of lovers walking along some dark road. He heard Corley's voice in deep, energetic gallantries and saw again the leer of the young woman's mouth. This vision made him feel keenly his own poverty of purse and spirit. He was tired of knocking about, of pulling the devil by the tail, of shifts and intrigues. He would be 31 in November. Would he never get a good job? Would he never have a home of his own? He thought how pleasant it would be to have a warm fire to sit by and a good dinner to sit down to. He had walked the streets long enough with friends and with girls. He knew what those friends were worth. He knew the girls, too. Experience had embittered his heart against the world. But all hope had not left him. He felt better after having eaten than he had felt before, less weary of his life, less vanquished in spirit. He might yet be able to settle down in some snug corner and live happily if he could only come across some good, simple-minded girl with a little of the ready. He paid twopence halfpenny to the slatternly girl and went out of the shop to begin his wandering again. He went into Capel Street and walked along towards the city hall. Then he turned into Dame Street. At the corner of Georgia Street he met two friends of his and stopped to converse with them. He was glad that he could rest from all his walking. His friends asked him had he seen Corley and what was the latest. He replied that he had spent the day with Corley. His friends talked very little. 
They looked vacantly after some figures in the crowd and sometimes made a critical remark. One said that he had seen Mac an hour before in Westmoreland Street. At this, Lenehan said that he had been with Mac the night before in Egan's. The young man who had seen Mac in Westmoreland Street asked, was it true that Mac had won a bit over a billiard match? Lenehan did not know. He said that Holohan had stood them drinks in Egan's. He left his friends at a quarter to ten and went up Georgia Street. He turned to the left at the city markets and walked on into Grafton Street. The crowd of girls and young men had thinned and on his way up the street he heard many groups and couples bidding one another good night. He went as far as the clock of the College of Surgeons. It was on the stroke of ten. He set off briskly along the northern side of the green, hurrying for fear Corley should return too soon. When he reached the corner of Merrion Street, he took his stand in the shadow of a lamp and brought out one of the cigarettes which he had reserved and lit it. He leaned against the lamp post and kept his gaze fixed on the part from which he expected to see Corley and the young woman return. His mind became active again. He wondered had Corley managed it successfully. He wondered if he had asked her yet, or if he would leave it to the last. He suffered all the pangs and thrills of his friend's situation as well as those of his own. But the memory of Corley's slowly revolving head calmed him somewhat. He was sure Corley would pull it off all right. All at once the idea struck him that perhaps Corley had seen her home by another way and given him the slip. His eyes searched the street. There was no sign of them. Yet it was surely half an hour since he had seen the clock of the College of Surgeons. Would Corley do a thing like that? He lit his last cigarette and began to smoke it nervously. He strained his eyes as each tram stopped at the far corner of the square. They must have gone home by another way. The paper of his cigarette broke and he flung it into the road with a curse. Suddenly he saw them coming towards him. He started with delight and, keeping close to his lamppost, tried to read the result in their walk. They were walking quickly, the young woman taking quick, short steps, while Corley kept beside her with his long stride. They did not seem to be speaking. An intimation of the result pricked him like the point of a sharp instrument. He knew Corley would fail. He knew it was no go. They turned down Baggett Street, and he followed them at once, taking the other footpath. When they stopped, he stopped too. They talked for a few moments, and then the young woman went down the steps into the area of a house. Corley remained standing at the edge of the path, a little distance from the front steps. Some minutes passed. Then the hall door was opened slowly and cautiously. A woman came running down the front steps and coughed. Corley turned and went towards her. His broad figure hid hers from view for a few seconds, and then she reappeared running up the steps. The door closed on her, and Corley began to walk swiftly towards Stephen's Green. Lenehan hurried on in the same direction. Some drops of light rain fell. He took them as a warning, and, glancing back towards the house which the young woman had entered to see that he was not observed, he ran eagerly across the road. Anxiety and his swift run made him pant. He called out, Hello, Corley! Corley turned his head to see who had called him, and then continued walking as before. 
Lenehan ran after him, settling the waterproof on his shoulders with one hand. Hello, Corley! He cried again. He came level with his friend and looked keenly in his face. He could see nothing there. Well, he said, did it come off? They had reached the corner of Eli Place. Still without answering, Corley swerved to the left and went up the side street. His features were composed in stern calm. Lenehan kept up with his friend, breathing uneasily. He was baffled, and a note of menace pierced through his voice. Can't you tell us? He said. Did you try her? Corley halted at the first lamp and stared grimly before him. Then, with a grave gesture, he extended a hand towards the light and, smiling, opened it slowly to the gaze of his disciple. A small gold coin shone in the palm. That was Two Galants by James Joyce. Jim Reed was Corley and Michael Grinnell played Lanahan. Catherine Brennan was the slatternly girl. Two Galants by James Joyce was narrated by Connor Farrington and the producer was William Stiles. Drama on One. Sundays at 8pm. rte.ie forward slash drama on one. Drama on One. The determined, discreet and cunning Mrs Mooney runs an almost respectable boarding house in Hardwick Street. When she notices something going on between her daughter Polly and one of her lodgers, the respectable Mr Doran, she shrewdly manoeuvres an upwardly mobile marriage between the two. This is The Boarding House by James Joyce. Mrs Mooney was a butcher's daughter. She was a woman who was quite able to keep things to herself, a determined woman. She had married her father's foreman and opened a butcher's shop near Spring Gardens. But as soon as his father-in-law was dead, Mr Mooney began to go to the devil. He drank, plundered the till, ran headlong into debt. It was no use making him take the pledge. He was sure to break out again a few days after. By fighting his wife in the presence of customers and by buying bad meat, he ruined his business. One night he went for his wife with the cleaver and she had to sleep in a neighbour's house. After that they lived apart. She went to the priest and got a separation from him with care of the children. She would give him neither money nor food nor house room and so he was obliged to enlist himself as a sheriff's man. He was a shabby, stooped little drunkard with a white face and a white moustache and white eyebrows pencilled above his little eyes which were pink-veined and raw. And all day long he sat in the bailiff's room waiting to be put on a job. Mrs Mooney, who had taken what remained of her money out of the butcher business and set up a boarding house in Hardwick Street, was a big, imposing woman. Her house had a floating population made up of tourists from Liverpool and the Isle of Man and occasionally artists from the music halls. Its resident population was made up of clerks from the city. She governed her house cunningly and firmly, knew when to give credit, when to be stern and when to let things pass. All the resident young men spoke of her as the madam. 
Mrs Mooney's young men paid 15 shillings a week for board and lodgings, beer or stout at dinner excluded. They shared in common tastes and occupations, and for this reason they were very chummy with one another. They discussed with one another the chances of favourites and outsiders. Jack Mooney, the madam's son, who was clerk to a commission agent in Fleet Street, had the reputation of being a hard case. He was fond of using soldiers' obscenities. Usually he came home in the small hours. When he met his friends, he had always a good one to tell them, and he was always sure to be onto a good thing, that is to say, a likely horse or a likely artiste. He was also handy with the mitts and sang comic songs. On Sunday nights, there would often be a reunion in Mrs Mooney's front drawing room. The music hall artists would oblige, and Sheridan played waltzes and polkas and vamped accompaniments. Polly Mooney, the madam's daughter, would also sing. She sang... Polly was a slim girl of 19. She had light, soft hair and a small, full mouth. Her eyes, which were grey with a shade of green through them, had a habit of glancing upwards when she spoke with anyone, which made her look like a little perverse Madonna. Mrs Mooney had first sent her daughter to be a typist in a corn factor's office, but as a disreputable sheriff's man used to come every other day to the office, asking to be allowed to say a word to his daughter, she had taken her daughter home again and set her to do housework. As Polly was very lively, the intention was to give her the run of the young men. Besides, young men like to feel that there is a young woman not very far away. Polly, of course, flirted with the young men, but Mrs Mooney, who was a shrewd judge, knew that the young men were only passing the time away. None of them meant business. Things went on so for a long time, and Mrs Mooney began to think of sending Polly back to typewriting when she noticed that something was going on between Polly and one of the young men. She watched the pair and kept her own counsel. Polly knew that she was being watched, but still her mother's persistent silence could not be misunderstood. There had been no open complicity between mother and daughter, no open understanding, but though people in the house began to talk of the affair, Still, Mrs Mooney did not intervene. Polly began to grow a little strange in her manner, and the young man was evidently perturbed. At last, when she judged it to be the right moment, Mrs Mooney intervened. She dealt with moral problems as a cleaver deals with meat, and in this case she had made up her mind. It was a bright Sunday morning of early summer, promising heat, but with a fresh breeze blowing. All the windows of the boarding-house were open, and the lace curtains ballooned gently towards the street beneath the raised sashes. The belfry of George's church sent out constant peals, and worshippers, singly or in groups, traversed the little circus before the church, revealing their purpose by their self-contained demeanour, no less than by the little volumes in their gloved hands. Breakfast was over in the boarding-house, and the table of the breakfast room was covered with plates on which lay yellow streaks of eggs with morsels of bacon fat and bacon rind. Mrs Mooney sat in the straw armchair and watched the servant Mary remove the breakfast things. 
she made Mary collect the crusts and pieces of broken bread to help to make Tuesday's bread pudding. When the table was cleared, the broken bread collected, the sugar and butter safe under lock and key, she began to reconstruct the interview which she had had the night before with Polly. Things were as she had suspected. She had been frank in her questions, and Polly had been frank in her answers. Both had been somewhat awkward, of course. She had been made awkward by her not wishing to receive the news in too cavalier a fashion, or to seem to have connived, and Polly had been made awkward not merely because allusions of that kind always made her awkward, but also because she did not wish it to be thought that in her wise innocence she had divined the intention behind her mother's tolerance. Mrs Mooney glanced instinctively at the little gilt clock on the mantelpiece as soon as she had become aware through her reverie that the bells of George's church had stopped ringing. It was seventeen minutes past eleven. She would have lots of time to have the matter out with Mr Doran and then catch short twelve at Marlborough Street. She was sure she would win. To begin with, she had all the weight of social opinion on her side. She was an outraged mother. She had allowed him to live beneath her roof, assuming that he was a man of honour, and he had simply abused her hospitality. He was thirty-four or thirty-five years of age, so that youth could not be pleaded as his excuse. Nor could ignorance be his excuse, since he was a man who had seen something of the world. He had simply taken advantage of Polly's youth and inexperience. That was evident. The question was, what reparation would he make? There must be reparation made in such cases. It is all very well for the man. He can go his ways as if nothing had happened, having had his moment of pleasure. But the girl has to bear the brunt. Some mothers would be content to patch up such an affair for a sum of money. She had known cases of it, but she would not do so. For her, only one reparation could make up for the loss of her daughter's honour, marriage. She counted all her cards again before sending Mary up to Mr Doran's room to say that she wished to speak with him. She felt sure she would win. He was a serious young man, not rakish or loud-voiced like the others. If it had been Mr Sheridan or Mr Mead or Bantam Lyons, her task would have been much harder. She did not think he would face publicity. All the lodgers in the house knew something of the affair, Details had been invented by some. Besides, he had been employed for thirteen years in a great Catholic wine merchant's office, and publicity would mean for him, perhaps, the loss of his sit. Whereas, if he agreed, all might be well. She knew he had a good screw for one thing, and she suspected he had a bit of stuff put by. Nearly the half-hour. She stood up and surveyed herself in the pier-glass. The decisive expression of her great florid face satisfied her, and she thought of some mothers she knew who could not get their daughters off their hands. Mr Doran was very anxious indeed this Sunday morning. He had made two attempts to shave, but his hand had been so unsteady that he had been obliged to desist. Three days reddish beard fringed his jaws, and every two or three minutes a mist gathered on his glasses, so that he had to take them off and polish them with his pocket-handkerchief. The recollection of his confession of the night before was a cause of acute pain to him. 
the priest had drawn out every ridiculous detail of the affair, and in the end had so magnified his sin that he was almost thankful at being afforded a loophole of reparation. The harm was done. What could he do now but marry her or run away? He could not brazen it out. The affair would be sure to be talked of, and his employer would be certain to hear of it. Dublin is such a small city. Everyone knows everyone else's business. He felt his heart leap warmly in his throat as he heard in his excited imagination old Mr. Leonard calling out in his rasping voice, Send Mr. Doran here, please. All his long years of service gone for nothing. All his industry and diligence thrown away. As a young man, he had sown his wild oats, of course. He had boasted of his free thinking and denied the existence of God to his companions in public houses. But that was all past and done with, nearly. He still bought a copy of Reynolds' newspaper every week, but he attended to his religious duties and for nine-tenths of the year lived a regular life. He had money enough to settle down on. It was not that but the family would look down on her. First of all, there was her disreputable father, and then her mother's boarding-house was beginning to get a certain fame. He had a notion that he was being had. He could imagine his friends talking of the affair and laughing. She was a little vulgar. Sometimes she said, I seen, and if I'd have known. But what would grammar matter if he really loved her? He could not make up his mind whether to like her or despise her for what she had done. Of course, he had done it too. His instinct urged him to remain free, not to marry. Once you are married, you are done for, it said. While he was sitting helplessly on the side of the bed in shirt and trousers, she tapped lightly at his door and entered. She told him all, that she had made a clean breast of it to her mother and that her mother would speak with him that morning. She cried and threw her arms round his neck, saying, Oh, Bob, Bob, what am I to do? What am I to do at all? She would put an end to herself, she said. He comforted her feebly, telling her not to cry, that it would be all right, never fear. He felt against his shirt the agitation of her bosom. It was not altogether his fault that it had happened. He remembered well with the curious, patient memory of the celibate, the first casual caress her dress, her breath, her fingers had given him. Then, late one night, as he was undressing for bed, she had tapped at his door timidly. She wanted to relight her candle at his, for hers had been blown out by a gust. It was her bath night. She wore a loose, open combing jacket of printed flannel. Her white instep shone in the opening of her furry slippers, and the blood glowed warmly behind her perfumed skin. From her hands and wrists, too, as she lit and steadied her candle, a faint perfume arose. On nights, when he came in very late, it was she who warmed up his dinner. He scarcely knew what he was eating, feeling her beside him alone at night in the sleeping house. And her thoughtfulness. If the night was anyway cold or wet or windy, there was sure to be a little tumbler of punch ready for him. Perhaps they could be happy together. They used to go upstairs together on tiptoe, 
each with a candle, and on the third landing exchange reluctant good nights. They used to kiss. He remembered well her eyes, the touch of her hand, and his delirium. But delirium passes. He echoed her phrase, applying it to himself. What am I to do? The instinct of the celibate warned him to hold back. But the sin was there. Even his sense of honor told him that reparation must be made for such a sin. While he was sitting with her on the side of the bed, Mary came to the door and said that the missus wanted to see him in the parlor. He stood up to put on his coat and waistcoat, more helpless than ever. When he was dressed, he went over to her to comfort her. It would be all right, never fear. He left her crying on the bed and moaning softly. Oh, my God! Going down the stairs, his glasses became so dimmed with moisture that he had to take them off and polish them. He longed to ascend through the roof and fly away to another country where he would never hear again of his trouble, and yet a force pushed him downstairs step by step. The implacable faces of his employer and of the madam stared upon his discomfiture. On the last flight of stairs he passed Jack Mooney, who was coming up from the pantry, nursing two bottles of bass. They saluted coldly, and the lover's eyes rested for a second or two on a thick bulldog face and a pair of thick, short arms. When he reached the foot of the staircase, he glanced up and saw Jack regarding him from the door of the return room. Suddenly he remembered the night when one of the music hall artistes, a little blonde Londoner, had made a rather free allusion to Polly. The reunion had been almost broken up on account of Jack's violence. Everyone tried to quiet him. The music hall artistes, a little paler than usual, kept smiling and saying that there was no harm meant. But Jack kept shouting at him that if any fellow tried that sort of a game on with his sister, he'd bloody well put his teeth down his throat so he would. Polly sat for a little time on the side of the bed, crying. Then she dried her eyes and went over to the looking-glass. She dipped the end of the towel in the water-jug and refreshed her eyes with the cool water. She looked at herself in profile and readjusted a hairpin above her ear. Then she went back to the bed again and sat at the foot. She regarded the pillows for a long time, and the sight of them awakened in her mind secret, amiable memories. She rested the nape of her neck against the cool iron bed rail and fell into a reverie. There was no longer any perturbation visible on her face. She waited on patiently, almost cheerfully, without alarm her memories gradually giving place to hopes and visions of the future. Her hopes and visions were so intricate that she no longer saw the white pillows on which her gaze was fixed or remembered that she was waiting for anything. At last she heard her mother calling. She started to her feet and ran to the banisters. Polly? Polly? Yes, Mama. Come down, dear. Mr. Doran wants to speak to you. Then she remembered what she had been waiting for.
We've been listening to The Boarding House by James Joyce. Kate Minogue played Mrs Mooney and her daughter Polly was Barbara McCaughey. Mr Leonard was played by Seamus Ford. The Boarding House by James Joyce was narrated by Connor Farrington and the producer was William Stiles. And if Bloomsday has left you craving more Joyce or you just can't wait to hear the rest of Dubliners, you can listen to and download all 15 stories and much more besides now on rte.ie slash Ulysses or on the Drama on One website. The series producer of Drama on One is Kevin Reynolds. Drama on One. Sundays at 8pm. rte.ie forward slash Drama on One. Drama on One.